This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I am indeed here. I'm happy to be here as always. Hey, are you going over to the Twins game at Target Field next? Well, uh, we are ending the show a little early, but we have our, my wonderful co-worker at the magazine, Steph March, and went and tasted all the new foods at Target Field this year, and we have a big review of everything. And I find some of these foods to be kind of nuts. I don't understand who goes to the ballpark and wants a $60 steak, but that's one of the things that is on option. It made me remember somebody I grew up with who used to go with his mom and dad to Shea Stadium to see the Mets all the time, and they would bring a bread bag with cheese sandwiches, mustard and cheese sandwiches kind of stacked into the bread bag because they didn't want to spend so much money at the ballpark. Kind of makes me think, I don't know, what do you bring to the ballpark? That's what we're going to do for the Ask Me Anything at the end. What do you? What is your like touchstone food, the meaningful food, the food of your childhood? Because those are the, I feel like those are the important stories right now. And I, I might be thinking that partly because I have Israeli-born chef Alan Shaya on the line today. And he, he's a, got a really interesting book. He's been a rising star in New Orleans for a bunch of years. And we have him on the radio today because of his new cookbook. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting book. It's kind of part memoir, part personal. Um, I don't want to say manifesto because that's not the right word, but it, it brings his philosophies of food really to the, to the foreground. Uh, he's now currently opening his own hospitality company and opening a couple of Israeli-inspired restaurants. They're going to be Saba in New Orleans and Safta in Denver. And he's doing this all at a very odd time. He's kind of pulling himself out of the wreckage created by his employer, John Besh, who is a very famous New Orleans chef who was brought down in a chaotic situation in New Orleans by the by the Me Too movement. And after Brett Anderson, Minnesota's son, son of uh, Governor Wendell Anderson, Brett, Brett, I know a lot of you know him, Brett kind of wrote this amazing expose of John Besh casting a light on the experiences of all these women and worked there who were just horribly harassed. Uh, it was an important story. And then, of course, it brings down all kinds of other people's careers in the crosshair. Uh, one of them is Alon Shia. So Alon Shia is trying to make his own name, show who he is and what's real. Same time, amazing recipes, sharing them, which is always a gift. So I think this is just a, a fascinating place to be. And Alon Shia, you are in the middle of it. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Dara? Thanks for having me. I am good. I love your book. It's amazing. <clears throat> Thank you so much. I'm I'm really happy with the way it turned out. We've worked so hard on it, and uh, Tina Antolini was my co-writer on the book, and we um, we're just so uh, so happy with it finally being out there and people to read the stories and be able to cook the recipes and and uh, yeah, what you mentioned that the book was 
kind of like part memoir. And, and what we really worked hard on was uh, making, you know, like kind of telling these short stories about um, moments in life, uh, moments in my life in particular, but I think it's moments in life that many people can relate to, um, always ups and downs. And yeah, let's, let's tell, tell one of these stories. They're, they're really memorable. Yeah. Tell me, tell us, tell the people about the first time you made Hamantaschen. Yeah, well, um, you know, that, that story kind of goes back to when I was very young and my, my family had immigrated to America. Uh, my mother and my father had um, split shortly after uh, the move. And my mom was raising my sister and I on her own uh, and working two jobs at the same time. Uh, and so as a kid at the age of seven, eight, nine years old, I had a lot of time on my hands. And I was always by myself. And, you know, when I wasn't at school, I was home alone. And uh, I loved cooking because it reminded me of, of my grandmother um, who would come and visit from Israel and my mother. You know, one of the things that um, we really held on to from our, from our background in Israel was the cooking and the food and the eating. And it was a sense of familiarity for me. And so... I uh, I made some hamantaschen, I think at the age of eight or so, um, and they came out pretty good. And my mom took them to the synagogue and passed them around, and everybody really liked them. And, and you were, I mean, that's a lot of different steps. So if people don't know, hamantaschen's a little baked pastry, basically, a little filled baked pastry. So you had to mix the dough, uh, you know, oh, turn yeah. on the oven. Roll it out, preheat the oven, you know, get the filling together. Uh, shape them and bake them and, you know, make sure I set the timer right. And I just picture your mom at her job calling you on, you know, a desk phone in the 80s with a, you know, spiral cord and then you picking it up yeah. on your own. Yeah, she kept calling and asking if the house had burned down yet. And I, and I kept saying, Mom, don't worry about it. The hamantaschen are fine. <laughs> uh, but it was kind of that, you know, beginning of this very independent lifestyle for me. And, and, uh, you know, I kind of came up through the restaurant business and worked worked since the age of 13 in food and beverage. And, um, yeah, and the book really kind of just takes you through all of these moments. Uh, from from that uh, chapter, you know, there's a, a chapter called uh, Arrested for the Munchies, which is kind of the story of as I got older and, and started getting into a lot of trouble, um, you know, I would find all kinds of creative ways to get in trouble and get arrested by the police. And, uh, you know, there, and, and then find, and then from there, the home ec hero, which was my home economics teacher, Donna Barnett, who saw that I was this very troubled kid, but I had a passion for food and, and really kind of helped me realize that I could make it into a career. And, and she got me into culinary school and, and the story goes on all the way up until, you know, just, uh, just last year or so. And, and that, that is the, the beauty I think of the book is that as you read the stories, it's not just about food, it's about life and it's about moments in life. That it's, a, it's a very food. common story, a very American story. I can think of, you know, I personally started working 
in restaurant kitchens when I was 13. I was one of the 13-year-old dishwashers uh, who would, yeah. you know, and I, I, I had a troubled home myself. And this was a, an amazing place for me to be where I was really appreciated. And it was, I just right. warmed to it. I thought it was amazing. But I can think of half a dozen chefs I know. You know, this is a, always a common, a common American story is a kid who's working in a kitchen at 13. And we always kind of put this Andrew Carnegie spin on it like, well, that gumption, they started early. But it's often also, it was a, it was a troubled home, and a kitchen is a, can be a, a, a place where you can really um, make a difference without a ton of connections or skills or you know, degrees, all that kind of stuff. And then what I love about your story is that it's, it's a universal story, but it's specific to you. And what's specific to you is, is uh, you know, that you've kind of found your roots through all these American kitchens. Yeah, and the book in itself is kind of a search for identity. Um, you know, it, uh, from the beginning, you know, I, I really struggled with identity. When I moved to this country, I didn't speak any English, and all I wanted to do was assimilate and kind of take my past and erase it. And I wanted to become just like every other kid in school. And, um, and it was always very hard for me to kind of find that place. And, uh, and that's why the, the title of the book is um, Shia, My Journey Back to Israel in Odyssey and Food, because it, eventually the book at the last chapter ends with me opening an Israeli restaurant. And from all of the years of kind of searching for who I was and what I should be doing and what I should be cooking and, and all these stories along the way, like going to culinary school, surviving Hurricane Katrina and, and really realizing that, you know, food should be comforting and should be, and should be something that people can really um, find find comfort and happiness in versus me trying to kind of show off my my skills or, or being uh, egotistical and how I cooked. Well, your skills uh, you know. are your skills are important, and I think a, ve- a lot of very talented people come up against this. Right, is that you could you could do anything, right? You could cook Italian yeah. food, you could cook Creole food. You know, your your skill set allows you to do a lot of things. But then, kind of finding who you know, not following the money and finding out who you are, that can be a hard road to travel because there's not a lot of support for it. No, and it's up to it's up to me to figure that out, right? Just like it's up to all of us to kind of understand where our place is and what the right thing is to do. Um, you know, and that story continues. The journey doesn't end. And now uh, the past uh, year or so has, you know, been uh, definitely uh, a roller coaster of experiences and emotions with um, losing my namesake restaurant to John Besh um, and having to leave my name behind. Yeah, um, we haven't but, talked about that because I think you don't want you can't talk about that, right? Because you're in a intellectual property dispute about your name. Well, I mean, I'm talking about. I, I, there's a lot that I can talk about, and uh, I think that you know what one thing that is evident is that the journey continues; that it doesn't just stop with the last chapter of the book. What and do you think your life I, would be like if you had taken that road and just, you know, cooked uh, fine cooking in a hotel, uh, fri- fine French well, cooking in a yep. hotel? What do you think it would be like? Every, 
Well, you know, I have no idea. You know, I think about that a lot. I think about, like, what would my life have been if I never immigrated to America? Um, I think now, like, what what would my life have been had I not, uh, you know, really focused on my values and my character and the things that I find to be most important to me now in life, which isn't just food. You well, know, I guess and, we, and should, was, we should talk about for the whole for the audience. What you know? What is it that made? What happened? You you resigned from the John Besh group in the when things were hitting the fan, right? Well, I was actually fired from the company for talking to Brett Anderson um, about what was going on in the company, and uh, and from there, I kind of had to make it make the decision to either you know, stay and kind of play ball or um, move on and, and forge a new path. And um, the, the, the answer was very simple to me, and that was that I, I knew that my life was really just uh, at a turning point. And why that why did you able- choose to? I'm happy that you did, but why did you make that choice to talk to Brett Anderson? Well, you know, I, I found that my values and my character were going to be put before anything else. And that was very important to me. Um, and it was, a, and what I, what, a, what I have done since that conversation is created pomegranate hospitality, which is our new hospitality group. And the DNA of that company is based on values and a mission that our team has put together. Because and, you started with, with John Besh when you were quite young. Yeah, I was 23 years old. You are 23, so. and then that's kind of the, the crucible that brought you to national attention. And, and, that's, uh, and obviously you had thoughts while things were going on that things, something was rotten in Denmark, as it were. Well, you know, as, as I grow, you know, as, like everybody, as you grow, you, you mature and you learn kind of where what's most important to you. And, and that happened to me, you know, it's not, it's not any different than anybody else's life. I think what, what the difference is is what decisions you make uh, that are based around, um, do I stick with the money? Do I, you know, do I, you know, stay around and cash in or do I, um, you know, leave it all behind and start from scratch and know that my life and my experiences will, will have, um, set me up and be, and have prepared me for this moment. And uh, um, I could not be happier, and I could not be more optimistic and excited about what we're doing next. Uh, we've, as a team, have built a set of values that include equality and passion and creativity and accountability and respect. And all of these things is how we will operate our company. And it's from recruitment to evaluations to training See, I think this is important because we've heard a lot of these stories about, you know, people have been brought down by Me Too, but we haven't heard very much about how people are building a better future after Me Too. And you are, you know, the person who's doing this most in the public eye right now. Well, I don't know that I'm the person that's doing it the most, and I think a lot well, of Well, in the public are, eye, I mean, you've been very transparent. You've you've shared your principles that you're grow- building your business yeah, upon. We- we we definitely have, and 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 I feel like the transparency is important, right? Because all of us have a lot to learn, and all of us have a lot of work to do. 
um, to actually make the Me Too movement, uh, you know, stay and then be impactful for for forever. And uh, I'm not like inventing anything, you know. We're working hard on living up to our promises, and we're pulling best practices from different people that are doing really great things. You know, I, just like everybody else, I read the articles and. I read an article about a restaurant in San Francisco that has a color code for... Oh, yeah, I read that, too, for, for when hus- customers are harassing people. We don't have a ton of time, but yeah. I do want to ask you this. So tell me, did growing up with your single mom, and you were such you seemed like such a good kid. You were making dinner all the time and grocery shopping on your own. And, <laughs> and uh, before you turned into a bad kid, you were a good kid. And did... Do you think growing up with, a, with a, your mom, you know, just hauling so much and doing so much work, did that influence your kind of commitment to me too and your ethical stance in the world you know i i don't know i uh i I think that i've had a lot of very strong women characters in my life and when you read the book you'll see you know my grandmother my mother donna barnett who was my home economics teacher who really helped me forge that path forward in my career um my wife, Emily, who's been such a, a, an amazing influence and part of my life. And there, there's been a lot of strong women, and I've always, um, you know, looked up to them. And, and I've appreciated the, uh, what they've brought to my life and how they've helped my life. And that's never changed. So that's, I think that's just kind of part of who I am. I love your book. It's just it's just fantastic. So, Alun Shaya, what a treat to get to talk to you. I really admire you. everything you're doing. Your your position on rebuilding a you know or building a company from the ground up based in ethics, I, I think, is just fantastic because you really it's to lead your values, to live your values. It's the it's such a challenge, but that's the most important thing. Thank you so much. We're we're working hard, and we don't pretend to be experts at it. We're just doing the best we can to to to, to live up to the promises we're making to everybody around us. Okay, and so for I feel like we didn't get into recipes enough, but I've got one on the website. Then we're going to share your amazing hummus recipe, and uh, it's a it's a good thing to gather around. So that was great yeah. having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. You too. Thanks. When we come back, we're going to do this. We're going to talk about these these top five hummus recipes. They're up on our brand new WCCO website. They look pretty good. If you're thinking, I can just get that off a shelf at the grocery store in a tub. Well, we're going to elevate things a bit when we come back. Dara here. Okay. So that last segment, we were talking to Alon Shaya. That's S-H-A-Y-A. Uh, the book subtitle is An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. That's just fascinating. And it's got recipes, really good recipes, including hummus we're going to get to here. So I have uh, the top five hummus recipes. This is like we do every week, right? We love this. We love talking about hummus. Everybody apparently likes talking about hummus. I did a little research just before uh, you know, putting my recipes together, and did you know? That hummus is about to be a one b b b b b billion dollar global industry. How crazy is that? A billion dollars a year spent by people on hummus. It's got nine percent growth in the United States. There's horrible things happening, like brownie dessert hummus made with coconut oil and sugar. I do not 
do not support this. Do not go out there and buy brownie batter hummus. You're you're not that's not good for you. That's not a good idea. It's not good for me. It makes me angry. So that's not good. So uh, why why is regular hummus that is not brownie batter hummus? Why is it growing so much? You know, it's just because it's got high fiber, kind of low glycemic index. It that means it slowly reduces introduces sugar into your bloodstream. Those high glycemic index foods are, uh, or rather, low glycemic index foods are healthier. You don't get your insulin spikes, and because it's so healthy. You know, every kind of health guru does recommend it, and that's how you get to a billion-dollar industry. But I know that mainly you're buying hummus in tubs from the grocery store. That is mainly how I buy hummus myself. Um, But, you know, as frozen pizza is to other pizza, tubs of hummus are to hummus you make yourself. So I'm not saying you need to do this, but you could. All right, so I've got top five. They're up there at our new wcco.radio.com website. The best way to find them is going to have to be via my Twitter or Facebook because it's just the longest. We don't have the short earls yet. We're onboarding people. We're getting this act together. We will have the shorter earl at some point, but we don't have it yet. All right, so my number five is is a little genius kitchen recipe. So a lazy person's hummus without tahini. When we grind up peanuts, we call it peanut butter. Grind up almonds, call it almond butter. Grind up sesame seeds, then we call it tahini. I don't get that. But uh, a lot of people don't stock tahini. You don't have it in your cupboard. That's fine. You can still make some hummus. I put up a really easy one. It's just, uh, you know, chickpeas, olive oil, lemon juice, salt, and pepper. That's all. Throw those in the food processor. Get a little kid in your life. They can push the button. That's fun. All right. And what's my number four? guacamole hummus. Yeah, Americans love to tinker. And so I have I have seen so many hummuses. I've seen edamame hummus and different feta cheese hummuses and all kinds of things. But here's a, here's a nice one that you just kind of throw an avocado in there. I put this in because it's height of avocado season still. They're, the grocery stores I'm going to, they're still really cheap and they're healthy and they're creamy and I like them. They're good for you. So throw a throw an avocado in your hummus. That's kind of fun. All right, number three, my three. This is kind of more of an idea than a recipe, though I did have a link to a recipe if you need it. But here's how to use your hummus during the week. Get a nice brown bread, spread hummus on there, put some slices of feta cheese, maybe some herbs, maybe some cucumber slices if you got them, just, you know, some green things for crunch. Now you've got a really healthy, good, low glycemic index lunch take with you to work. That's a good thing. My number two recipe This is your roasted beet hummus. I was talking to Bertrand Weber, who runs the Minneapolis Public School food scene, and he told me that he adopted this roasted beet hummus from this Minneapolis restaurant called Wiseacre. This is just, you take a roasted beet, you blend it into the hummus. It goes so pink. It's like flamingo pink, fluorescent pink, really pink, and kids love it because it looks fun. So you could do this yourself. You could put glitter on it if you're kind of living that way. But uh, I've got a recipe up for there, for that, there, roasted beet hummus. And what is the number one? Well, you knew it was going to be an Alan Shia recipe because he's so good. So I have a curried onion and cauliflower hummus. And if you want to learn how to make a hummus that is so fancy that everybody at your dinner party is going to be like, ooh, ah, then this is this is the one. So these are all up at our new WCCO.radio.com 
website. And we come back, I'm going to talk to you about your favorite ballpark foods. If you have a favorite, text me, 81807. I'm feeling like my favorite, I'm just going to go with a hot dog. You knew that was going to, what I was going to say, the Kermarchik dog. Come on, that's a good thing. But you tell me what you got. 81807, and we'll get to that when we come back. I am back with a brief amount of time. All right, so ask me anything. All, all Y'all are wise guys. All I'm hearing back from you that your favorite ballpark thing is beer. I hear you. I hear you. Beer is a, beer is a good one. Um, I've got a question. I've read that sprouts can make you sick, but I love to have them on a salad or sandwich. Do you recommend a certain kind? The problem with sprouts is that they grow, you know, they grow in the same kind of humid uh, atmosphere that can produce uh, dangerous bacteria, right? So it's not particularly a certain kind of sprout. They're all a little risky. But if you love them, what? Life's too short. Uh, stop you from eating sprouts. So just get the ones that you like. Um, I I, uh, I can't recommend a particular kind. They're pretty much all co-equal, sprouts are. They're, if you ever get the sprouted uh, beans, like a kind of lentil mix of those things. Oh, those are ridiculously healthy. But I don't know if they're rel- ridiculously delicious. I don't think I live a life where I f- seek out the healthiest things all the time. But yeah, it's a sad thing about sprouts is that they grow in these humid conditions. But that's their nature. You can't get around that. All right, I got uh, next week, Mushroom Hunters. I booked the show when I was naive and I assumed that the snow would be melting and it would be morel season. So will everything happen next week after the snow passes and and then we'll have snow melt and all the morels will pop out of the ground? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're still going to talk about mushroom people next, mushroom hunters next week. Mushroom people. That sounds totally different. Till then, I hope your hummus comes out moist and your basement stays dry and I will see you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law.